how's it going? That's good. Thanks. Yeah. I'm surprised I'm as effective as I am right now, considering what transpired last night. What transpired last night? Like, you can't like start that ago. sentence and then I'm, like I'm, cut it off. It's well, we went out last night, right? But beyond that, I was like, we went for tacos. So, just to give people a preface, I'm in Puebla, Mexico, right now, which is like I think like an hour, hour and a half out of Mexico City. It's a relatively big city. It's probably about three million people, but we have friends that's that are living here and they're from here. Okay. And they took us for tacos, and I think we crushed between four people. Like, I want to say like twenty tacos at like four a.m. Okay, and this is and after like, a I, night out. Yeah, like it wasn't too crazy though. Okay. So am but I talking? My, my stomach to... is feeling it right now. Oh god! I'm like so, so, I'm not so talking full to right hungover now. Eugene. I'm talking to like potentially food something eugene food poisoning more like i'm full overeating no no nothing like that overeating plus like spicy food but all right this is verging on too much information i was talking to sharice because we had to rearrange a few times because i'm traveling and it's sometimes hard to get reliable internet it's hard to you know guarantee that you have a quiet space so i had to wake up extra early so i'm running off like four and a half hours of sleep but you have to do what you got to do. Yes. You got to do what you got to do. You'll be right. fine. I believe in you. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Should we jump right into it? Let's do it. That's been enough update on Eugene's personal life. But if there's a lull in this podcast, it's because Eugene had to run to the bathroom. All right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to turn that into a segue, but... I mean, it kind of works for me. You're just becoming an old man. I guess so. That's it. Your stomach can't take it anymore, Yuge. Go for it. Tell, tell me about your subject. All right, so we're not going to do paper, rock, scissors. I'll go right into well, it then. But it would be a farce because we were definitely uh, yeah. starting with yours, aren't we? The way this week's episode took shape is that Eugene picked his topic definitely. And then I messaged him and I was like, hey, actually, that reminds me of this other thing. And that's how this episode got formed. So yeah, that's what we're doing. Okay, let's let's jump right into it then. Yeah. So oh. my subject is... Why are products for older people so ugly? As the market for products aimed at older users explodes, some entrepreneurs are turning to a radical idea, actually getting customers involved. So this was an article that was featured in MIT's Technology Review, and it was written by Andy Wright. And it talks about the world of exclusionary design. I guess in some ways it doesn't talk about the world of exclusionary design, so much as design itself has excluded a lot of people, as, and in this case, older generations. That's probably uh, a better way of putting I, it. Yeah, that is a better way of putting it. Yeah, better than what I had written anyways. And there's this common perspective that older generations, which in this case, isn't really defined by like a catch-all term. Like they're not calling them baby boomers. It's just more so like 
when you're anyone over 60 yeah that's kind of how they prefaced it yeah uh they're neglected when it comes to product design and the story itself focuses on the longevity explorers a group founded by richard caro which is as they put it a way to experiment and improve the way technology is developed for older adults. Mm-hmm. They've been meeting since 2014. Throughout most of the meetings, Carl, who I mentioned before is the founder, he just kind of sits quietly at the head of the table and just listens. And he listens to people's insights and he listens to how people look to solve some of the challenges that their demographic experiences. And everyone in these groups are over the age of 60. Yeah. So one of the things that helped sort of shape the story itself was they used an example of a piece of poor design. Basically, it's a pad that people wear or senior citizens wear that cushions their fall. Mm -hmm. So as you get older, sometimes your balance isn't isn't as good. So there's a chance or risk of falling. Yeah. And that's really serious for older people because falls lead to being in the hospital. And that actually leads to a lot of uh, bigger problems. Degenerative stuff and whatnot. What they're saying is that while it's functional, nobody wants to wear it because it makes their ass look big. It, may, it just yeah. changes the shape of their body, right? Yeah. I'm going to read this passage because I think it sums it up quite well. Yeah, so it's pretty it. long, but it, it'll probably do a better job than what I could do myself. I guess it's two passages broken up and it does a good job of highlighting the whole movement at hand and why it's required. So the first one is a quote by Elizabeth Zelensky. Presented with products that are brown, beige, and boring, many older people will forgo convenience for dignity. If they had done just some user testing, she says, they would have saved themselves from a lot of heartache. So Zelenisky's background is, she's a professor at the University of Southern California's Leonard Davis School of Gerontology. So she does a lot of study into, huh, I'm going to have to right-click search gerontology to give you the exact definition. And gerontology is the scientific study of old age, the process of aging, and the particular problems of old people. So she's an expert. Yes. And another passage in this piece is, it's a familiar tune to engineer Ken Smith, director of the mobility division of the Stanford Center on Longevity. He says one of the biggest mistakes designers make is to assume that around the age of 60, people lose interest in aesthetics and design. This can have dire consequences for products meant to help people with their health. No one wants to stick a golf ball-sized hearing aid the color of chewed gum in their ear any more than they want to wear a t-shirt that reads, Senior Citizen. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's like people are designing these hearing aids and these hip pads that work great, that would increase your longevity, but it doesn't make a difference if the people that are meant to be using it don't want to use it. So I think the underlying belief is that you can't really teach an old dog new tricks. But that's not necessarily true. It just takes a bit longer. It's like how people our age kind of talk about our grandparents and say like, oh, we don't think we can teach them how to use a smartphone. But it's not actually that. It's just that it would take longer to teach them to use a smartphone. It's not like they're totally incapable. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, can you hear that? I can hear that, but I don't know. I think just forge ahead. Yeah, okay. We have a background I'm not sure audience. if you guys can hear that. Yeah, I don't know if you can hear the dogs barking in the background. but The dog wants to be a part of this um, making it up. So, according to Elizabeth Zelenesky, as I mentioned, the professor from USC, she says that aging causes changes to the medial temporal lobe, the part of the brain associated with new learning, and your white matter, or myeline, 
I think myelin is a proper pronunciation. No okay. White matter. Which helps speed the transmission of information from one brain cell to another is going to get funky, she says. People just need longer. They need more exposure to something to learn how to use it. It's not that they completely lose the ability to learn, which I think is really interesting. I, we, we often feel as though people can't learn, or maybe I think it's more so the foundation. This is another thing too, is that the cultural foundation might not exist. So if you grow up digitally savvy, I think our generation, especially like growing up digital first, will have that capability of learning things. Cause I think there's a foundation there versus those that weren't necessarily a participation in the transition, I guess, from analog to digital. But I mean, and they it, weren't as present. It could be interesting because I think part of the issue is also that when you age, it takes you, you were, you were going to realize that it takes you longer to learn something than it used to. And that could be really frustrating. And so that might keep you from persevering in learning something. I mean, I don't know what it's like to be old yet, but I'm trying to empathize with this feeling of like, when you were young and maybe it took you a day to pick up a new skill, now it takes you a month. And if it takes you a month, that can be more frustrating and you might not even want to try. Yeah. I think there's a lot of things at hand here where you, whether you have time, whether you have someone around you that is passively teaching you. But I think ultimately their goal in this point is to communicate that, hey, actually people are capable of learning new things yeah. and that they shouldn't be, I guess, forgotten about. In yeah, a way. definitely. Yeah. So to return back to the longevity explorers, they're at the forefront of consumer research for an older generation. And it's actually a movement that seems to be picking up steam. So not necessarily that longevity explorers itself is popular, like that that sort of movement, but so much as a lot of other design focused companies are starting to incorporate this type of focus group into their work. Basically, that they're starting to consult with older people. Yeah. So, for example, IDEO brought in Barbara Beskin, then 89, as a designer in 2013 to help it create products for older people. Hazel McKillian, former mayor of Mississauga, Ontario, in Canada, was 98 when Rivera, one of Canada's largest providers of assisted living, hired her as a chief elder officer in 2015. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, this is the part where I think we start to unpack the bigger issue at hand. What they're saying is that one reason why research is lagging for the older generation is that people are generally afraid of exploring aging head on and it scares them. The idea of getting older, uh, losing their abilities and whatnot, those are things that people just don't want to touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and one of the big learnings over the course of their research was that people over the age of 70 their biggest concern was that they were made to feel no longer useful and that culture themselves were kind of shunning them, pushing them aside. Hey, you're retired now, go and chill, go play card games or whatever with your friends. Yeah. I guess to go back to the, the whole movement behind the longevity explorers is that at these meetings, the way they set themselves up is that they'll bring together a group of people and generally what they're doing is they're identifying topics and themes. Mm -hmm. So within these meetings, what they're doing is identifying what are the core problems that, you know, people might be facing and they start to work through the challenges and find solutions for them. Well, they also let the participants themselves come with subjects that they're interested in. So it's really about like, what do you want to talk about? What have you noticed? One thing that, that I found really interesting was that 
despite the fact you're designing or trying to solve problems for a particular demographic, there's actually a lot of carryover effect from solving for their challenges. So one of the examples they used was the voting process in the United States. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read this, this passage. Those with weak or no vision liked having audio prompts, for instance, but so did people with low literacy and young people who had never voted before because the audio program acted as a host and guide. They also found that larger, more legible text was desirable from everyone's point of view, not just for older voters with poor vision. The new machines are currently being manufactured and will be rolled out soon under the assumption that they're changing how you interact with these machines. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really important. I guess to kind of cap things off, one of the big changes that people are being challenged to do is don't look at the elderly only as a source of dollars and revenue, right? It's more about actually utilize them as an opportunity to solve broader challenges within design. Yeah. And I think this is something that we have heard discussed, I think, you know, relatively frequently is that if you can make something usable by a five-year-old and a 75-year-old, then it probably has the right mechanics and the right amount of consideration to make it user-friendly. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if you have a way to to challenge that thought, but that's kind of what I don't, because I totally am on board with that. I I just think it is kind of sometimes hard to wrap your mind around because you might think, oh, if I design something for really young children or really elderly people, then that's designing for this like niche group okay and that like it's only good for that niche group instead of for everyone but the reality that research shows is that when you design with like the five-year-old and the 75-year-old in mind what happens is that is that it becomes better for everyone yeah the opposite is also true like actually if you design just for the 28-year-old okay like if you design for the 28-year-old urban, college-educated person, i.e. myself, then it actually is not applicable to like the very young and the very old. So when you design with me as like a target consumer in mind, you're actually limiting the range of people for whom this is useful and makes sense. It's really interesting. Yeah. So those are kind of, that's the crux of the conversation from the article itself. Why did you pick this? I think the one thing that drew me to this was Part of me looks at aging as something that everyone's trying to solve. And I was thinking to myself, I'm also really fascinated about generational challenges. So I was thinking to myself. What do you mean by that? Yeah. What I mean is that I'm curious if currently the challenges faced by this demographic will actually not really be an issue or will be severely reduced in 20 years. And what I was thinking was that Perhaps we're currently in the midst of this transformation where everything is so design-led and focused that we've grown up with it, right? I think Apple's done a great job of introducing design on a broader scale, and a lot of people have sort of also introduced the importance of design. So maybe back in the day, let's say, you know, 40 years ago, right? You had design, but I think the overall capabilities of people to understand good design or to have enough people that were engaging in design Mm. was severely limited. Mm -hmm. So now we have, this is more for the sake of argument, but let's say from 2000 onwards, design becomes a focal point of a lot of things in our life. Yeah. Right. So when those people grow up, 
they themselves will be designing products because there's so many more designers of that age that are potentially going to be solving these problems head on. And the reason why perhaps in the past, this generation didn't have a lot of great design solutions was because there just weren't enough people looking at this problem. But I'm saying I... right now is that maybe we have a glut of designers. Okay. Yes. Yes. I understand where you're coming from that like young people now have grown up in a more design centric society and therefore when they're older and they're they themselves are the people with decision making power and are parts of focus groups then products will get better but i also don't think that like our attitude towards the elderly is changing as in i think that we are still not doing a great job like the people in this essay said of making them feel included in culture and not like pushing them out so i don't know i'm not i again we're in that part of this episode where we like speculate about the future but i'm just saying i'm like not totally optimistic that as we grow older we're gonna start treating elderly people as like an increasingly contributing part of society perhaps i'm looking at it from way too much of a microscopic perspective where it's there's just aren't people working on this there aren't enough people but i guess you're trying to say that are we shifting our vantage point or how we view the elderly yeah yeah I, yeah i personally think we are shifting it a little bit i don't know why but i think that there is part of me that thinks that this shift is happening and part of it is because we've delayed growing up maybe a little bit longer where we've just been challenged in terms of of establishing our life, and you, what I mean what by you that mean is, is, yeah, you, what you mean is that like we as late twenties, thirties year old people that were not as grown up as in the past people were. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. I think that no one feels as old at thirty five as they did in the past. I but it doesn't necessarily see. and you're and so what you're trying to say is that now because we don't think of 35 as old as it used to be then it's closer to being a 70 year old i'm not totally following i don't track not totally closer but i think it's a a slight shift i i agree there's not this big huge campaign that's out there that's saying how do we promote how do we uh empower an older generation, but I also think it's not regressing. Okay. So I, I agree. I don't think that we're in the, like if I was to model it out, I don't think things will be significantly different. It's not that it's totally neglected because one thing that an older generation has is like they have experience, right? And experience is something mm -hmm. that's very hard for you to put in front of people because it just takes time, right? Like I can't just tell you to fast forward your life 30 years yeah. and then all of a sudden you'll you'll acquire all my wisdom. Yeah, you can't you can't substitute time is essentially what we've discovered. Yes, exactly. So, I guess maybe maybe to that point, how do you think we should approach empowering the elderly then? Like what is the the thought process behind giving them more power or how would you do it? Like I think that ultimately when I think of this movement or how to how to put momentum behind it it's how do you show value around the elderly generations I think it's related and you kind of hit on this but we didn't really dwell on it is that i think it's related to our concept of work and retirement and i think like back in the day there was like this really hard line 
between like I'm working, you know, 40 hours a week and then I turn 65 and then I retire and I go golf and play cards and I never think about work again. And I do think that this is shifting is that our attitudes towards work is not this thing where we're indebted to a company until we're 65 and then we can finally go and enjoy life. Rather, it's like a mix of work and pleasure up until we die, I guess. Like that seems to be the new model. Yeah. And I think that will actually affect how we incorporate elderly people into society more is that attitude towards the mix of work and pleasure. Yeah. Does that make sense? So what I'm saying is like the attitude is not really what's shifting isn't like young people's attitude towards elderly people, but like as a society, the way we all think about what work is and what retirement looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So you actually don't think it's a matter of showcasing the the value add. So much as shifting the the working behaviors and how we look at just timeline and lifeline of work yeah i think so i think i mean ultimately it winds up being the same result right that the same result of valuing the opinion of elderly people and finding ways to like um have them be a part of design processes or other processes but i think the driving force of that is going to be thinking about hey like i don't want to quit working when i'm 65 like i still want to do things that could be considered like productive to myself and to society. And so that must be how these people are feeling. I, I think actually the value is not necessarily rev- revisiting how we look at work mm. and life balance. It's more about how do I come in and showcase the value of somebody who has experience and who has a certain way of looking at it because they've seen so much more. Because I think now that I look at it, the challenges I had when I was younger, I would have definitely benefited from a mentor. And I think that some of the challenges I see now, I th- I think that obviously generationally, we do see changes, but I think those changes and those challenges manifest themselves as different rappers than they do an actual, rather than actually being a whole new mm-hmm. challenge or a whole new problem, mm-hmm. right? Everything digitally actually probably existed in some form as a problem that we went through, whether it was identity as a kid, whether it was bullying, it's just been magnified significantly Mm. over the course of, you know, digital integration. So for me, I was like, I'm thinking to myself, I think mentorship, and we've talked about this, like mentorship is really important. I think mentorship in the hands of an experienced individual actually is crazy important. And also from a company perspective, like if you're at a big company and you've been there for 20, 25 years, suddenly when you leave and there's not this proper sort of uh, passing of the guard, you lose so much knowledge. So I think that that experience is the thing that we cannot lose sight of. And that's where they provide the most value. Mm. Well, actually that does resonate with me. Like, I guess earlier I was talking about what I think in the future will be this larger societal shift about work. But in the short term, I actually do think that that's really important and is not something that a lot of people have, the mentorship relationship with someone who's older, like not someone just five years older, but 20 years older, let's say. And I don't know. I don't know why that doesn't exist more. I think the structures haven't haven't been built out properly. I think there's a pretty big gap 
that exists between, and perhaps someone can push against this, but I think that the gap currently of someone 70 versus the gap that will exist someone that's 70 in 20 years versus, you know, a 30 year old, I think will be a little bit smaller. Okay. So what you're saying is like the gap right now between yourself and a 70 year old is going to be different 20 years down the line between someone who's 30 and 70. Yeah. Because I think the digital foundation and the digital culture that we're building right now will in some ways equalize things a bit more. So Whereas essentially, like in the past, when you're 70, you're going to be able to relate to 30-year-olds better. I think so. I'm not necessarily mm-hmm. saying that it's easier, but I think the overall size will be smaller. Because I think if you look at social mm-hmm. media, like a 70-year-old who just isn't even on social media, 80-year-old, mm-hmm. it's they will never ever really come around to it in their lifetime and really fully understand it mm-hmm. versus someone that's grown up. And maybe that social media platform changes right mm-hmm. but we understand at its very core why it exists and why people engage in it do you think it's possible though that there will be something as monumental as the internet to take place between our current age and when we turn 70 that will then become a divide i'm not sure actually because your argument right is that like the internet was essentially this like huge shift this like turning point that like caused a gap between generations, between generations that didn't grow up with it and then generations that did grow up with it. And so essentially once we're old enough to be the older generation, we'll be closer to young people because we still grew up in that same environment. I guess what I'm saying is like, what if something happens between now and when we're 70 that like can divide us that way? Yeah, I mean, that, that I don't really have a full grasp on. I do, but I don't. I mean, this is like purely science fiction. It, 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 like I'm talking aliens or something. Like I just, yeah. I can't imagine it. I'm just tossing it out there. Like, Yeah. But I, I really think that there has to be something even bigger than the internet to come in. I don't see anything on the horizon right now anyways. But I, one thing I wanted to also utilize this opportunity, maybe it's a good way to segue into your topic is mm-hmm. how do we look at marginalized communities and look for them for inspiration and or solutions to broader challenges in society and culture. Yeah, I think that's a great segue. Should I just introduce my subject before I try to attempt to answer that question? Yeah, maybe maybe I have one last thing to say. And, and it's like the paradoxical approach to that thought is that why would us generally speaking smaller demographic have, well, not to say elderly or smaller demographic, but why would a neglected demographic actually yield answers like i find that incredibly fascinating yes how the solution might be just under our nose this whole time yeah 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 i think that's a good way to put it is like there is this paradox in our minds about turning to a niche group let's just call it a niche group to get answers to broader questions you know like how come that works And I am, instead of directly answering that, going to go into my subject for this week, which is kind of a really long way to answer your question.
So my subject this week is a disability access writer. A writer is R-I-D-E-R. And basically what that is, is a document that you provide a company or an institution, which is a list of requirements that you want in order to work with them. So actors might have writers for how they want to work with a film studio, for example. Okay. This particular disability access writer was written by Johanna Hedva, who published it to Twitter and social media as something that people can use as a resource. This person is a Korean-American writer, artist, musician based out of LA and Berlin. Hedva is the author of On Hell, is a screenwriter and exhibiting artist. I know of Johanna Hedva because of this essay written by this person called Sick Woman Theory in 2016. Have I spoken to you about Sick Woman Theory? No, you have not. Okay, so this is, it sounds like it's going to be a tangent, but I promise you that this is relevant. So the essay Sick Woman Theory is about centering society around the group of, quote, sick woman, which is explained in the essay as not meaning literally, like it encompasses literal women who are sick, but it's not just about sick women. It actually encompasses niche groups like the elderly, essentially groups that are not traditionally considered to be normal or well, like the most able people in society. And the essay is about what if instead of thinking of the young, super healthy, able, like athletic person as the norm, we actually structured society around the people who were not that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the theory says that even the people who are elderly, unwell, disabled, you know, bedridden, you know, they also are suffering by oppressive structures. Like they are also affected by governments, et cetera. And they want to, you know, make life better for themselves even though like they are in that condition. And how come we only think of like the normal young person as the standard and that when we aren't that standard, we have to like take care of ourselves until we are that standard again. Okay. So that's kind of like the context mm -hmm. of this disability access writer. And this person that wrote the writer has a chronic illness themselves, which is relevant because it explains like why the writer is even necessary. The It's actually quite short. It's like not this really long contractual document and it's really easy to understand. And it's something that's been offered to everyone, like open source essentially to copy and use. It covers subjects like money, scheduling, having a care person, air travel, lodging, event timing, accessibility, publicity, and documentation. And I think this starts to get at the question that you asked at the end of your subject. Because like when I say those topics and before I've said like what's under them, you could also see how you yourself would benefit from having those agreements with an institution. And it's not yeah. just something that, if, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, if I was to be very just straightforward and there's no negative connotation, they're just more like stipulations, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, It's like, exactly. if you wanna work with me, these are my stipulations. And she gives a breakdown why? And I think it's important too, because as I was reading this, I was like, hey, you know what? This person is in many ways a creative. They're bringing value to the table. If you would like to engage with them in a, in a way that results in the best outcome, then this is how it works. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's precisely that. It's not something that's just useful as a person with a chronic 
illness, but it's something maybe a lot of creatives could learn about having boundaries between yourself and an institution and about it's not just always going to be me as a creative accommodating you, the company or institution. And it's also like I'm asking you to accommodate me so that I can be the best you know, creative person that you're hiring me to do my work for. Yeah. Yeah. And what I also liked is that she doesn't just say like, this is what I want, A, B, C, D, E, but like, this is why I have these requirements. Like, this is necessary for me to perform the best that I can. Yeah. Right. So it's not just like, what's that famous thing about the band that only wanted like blue M&Ms or something? It's not like that. Okay. I know I know what you're exactly what you're talking about. It's like in the backstage area, these artists all have these crazy requirements. Well, yeah. not crazy, but you know, they have they have personal interests for their yeah. team or whatnot and they want to preserve that. Okay. I'm not trying to like ride roughshod over like these artists, but like we it, popularly we have heard of like different music artists who say, I only want you know, snicker bars that don't have the nuts in them or something like that. Like this is a different kind of list of requirements and mm-hmm. i'm just going to read uh two parts of it one is at the end johanna Heva writes it would be so cool and you'd make me and my friends and many others very happy and you'd increase the attendance of your events by a lot and you'd become a working part of building the kind of world that needs to be built if you would follow this document not just for me but for all your work in the future And so I think that answers your question too, at least from Hedva's point of view, is that like, if you try to meet these requirements, you're not just doing something that benefits specifically Johanna Hedva, the singular artist, but you're doing something that benefits like an entire audience, your audience, and then also like creates a bigger audience in the future. If I could jump onto that, the thing that just sort of popped into my mind is that the marginalized are those that are never the primary focus actually have to work harder to make sense of their movement and their position in life. And I think actually that might be the benefit that will benefit in the sense that like they, they just have a different point of view mm. that is actually much more well-rounded. Mm. Mm. Cause I look at my own experience growing up in a place where you didn't really have a lot of quote unquote creative culture. So you were forced to come to terms with it in almost a more deliberate way. Like I couldn't just walk out in the street and have it hit me in the face. I had to work through it. I had to like go and do things because if I didn't go and do it, then I wouldn't have anything to engage with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I think they make a really good point is that people who have chronic illnesses or are elderly or are in some kind of quote unquote like special situation like see the world from a more varied perspective and when you only accommodate this like very what turns out to be a very narrow idea of like normal then you leave out all of these different ways of seeing the world that you were not aware of the other part i wanted to read from this is At the beginning of the writer, Hedva writes, accessibility is just starting to take root in how institutions understand and work with disabled artists and communities. They've often never heard of access intimacy before, or if they have, they don't know what it means in actual practice. I found that my access writer is often the first of its kind that they've seen. It means that we're going to have to embark on access intimacy together. 
Before I can commit to that process with you, please take a moment to read the below and let me know how you can support each item. And so I wanted to talk about this because one, I like the term access intimacy, what it means. It was coined by Mia Mingus and it means having an understanding of someone's access needs. And I think that access intimacy can be not just relevant, and Mia Mingus writes this, not just relevant to like disabled people, but to everyone. Like you, Eugene, your access needs are different than mine. You know, like if you really thought about it, like maybe you would write a writer that said, I uh, need to get, you know, two nights of good sleep before I can be in a conference because like that's actually like my capacity. And I, I think it's interesting to start thinking about like, each of us have different types of access, essentially, like that we that we don't really communicate about. Yeah, yeah. Do you think these documents themselves need to have a bit more of a preface around it? Because as you mentioned, some people have never seen this. And mm -hmm. if you get this document, you're probably thinking to yourself, oh man, this person is so demanding. But the reality is actually from the flip side, the demanding element is I just want to do a good job mm -hmm. and I do a good job under these circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, at this point in culture, I mean, the same with your subject, right? Like there's going to be this more intensive on-ramp situation where like we figure out how to read access writers and we figure out how to incorporate elderly people into design processes but it's it's a situation of if we put in all of that hard work now then it just gets easier like if after you encounter an access writer one time then you're more prepared fr from then on for everything and the same thing with your subject like after you ask one elderly person suddenly like the scales from fall from your eyes you're like oh of course they don't want to wear the hip pad because it makes them look fat it's just it becomes like an ongoing application you know every consecutive time will be easier to work with that understanding of the world yeah one thing that i came across recently that really sort of stuck with me is that sometimes in these communications that involve a bit of negotiation mm -hmm. or dialogue over agreed upon terms, sometimes we defer to uh, a fight. Mm -hmm. Some people mm -hmm. do anyways, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important to understand the perspective of somebody if you don't agree with it versus trying to double down on your own belief. Yeah. 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 That's something I find really interesting because I was, as I was listening to this, it was actually from a Two Bobs podcast. And if you're not familiar with Two Bobs, it's a really good podcast on just structuring your creative businesses. And it was just talking about how in some negotiations, sometimes someone might push back and you just think the absolute worst, like this person is an idiot. Um, they're trying to rip me off, whatever. Like sometimes trying to get a level or two deeper allows you to better understand the challenge. And by doing so, you kind of understand the problem you guys are trying to solve together versus, hey, you know what? I'm going to fight you to the death on why it needs to be done this way. So I don't necessarily think that it needs to be just heavy handed in either direction. There has to be a level of concession if you actually do want to arrive at um, an opportunity to work together. And this is I don't want to get into this too much, but I just look at the world around us right now and it just seems as though no one really wants to make any concessions because concessions 
maybe present themselves as weakness. For me, I think it's more broader than that. It's like if I want to come to a a solution that is meaningful to everybody, because a solution is better than no solution, right? In some, in most circumstances, right? Yeah, I agree. But also, I guess my addition to it is that it is really, really hard. And I've been thinking about kind of the same subject as well. And I've been thinking about anger and like when people get angry about something and something that I've been trying to like, I was reading a book about this and um, it's by Liz Lerman. And she was saying like, oh, instead of just like registering someone's anger at you and then like becoming angry at them for like their anger, it's really asking, you know, why are they angry? And asking yourself like, oh, why am I angry back? Which is kind of the same thing as you were saying about negotiations. Like instead of registering, oh, like someone's making these demands and they're being really intense about their demands. It's asking like, oh, well, why, why are these demands like in existence? And why are they like communicating it this way? Yeah, but it's super not easy. Yeah, because that's another thing too, is especially across cultural differences too, when English, French, Chinese, whatever is not someone's first language, they may not have the language capabilities to communicate the nuance needed either yeah like i always think about this when when you're traveling that you see this all the time right i'm i speak one language you speak another language you get frustrated with that person because they don't understand you they're frustrated with you you guys are each speaking your own native tongue at different varying speeds to hope so that in hopes that they they understand you when no one's gonna understand anybody so sometimes you just need to step back and realize based on this like i need to find a different way of solving this yeah. And also, the other reason why this is so hard is that not everyone has done the like internal work to figure out why they are making the, the demands that they are. Hedva has done this work where it's, oh, I need this and this is why, because like X, Y, Z. But a, lo- a lot of times people say, this is what I need. And when you push them as like why, they're not able to articulate, well, like this is this is why. Right. And so it's like, oh, now I'm just helping you do therapy. Sorry. Now I'm starting to sound frustrated. Sometimes just having this baseline is room for discussion too. Like, let's just say that somebody is requesting, I need to fly premium economy or better. Right. I think immediately that helps structure it because, hey, we'd love to have you, but this is our first year doing this. We don't have the budget to fly you, you know, to London. And I think yeah. that that's totally fine. You know, at least there's a discussion there. And yeah. if that happens, then you just have to find another way of, of moving past that. One thing I'm curious, just to cap things all off, is that in light of all of this, you mentioned that for some people, they've done the personal process of figuring out what they need. How do you think people should approach that and develop their own sort of uh, stipulations? Mm. Mm-hmm. Or is it really just like taking this document and then utilizing that as the skeleton or framework for your own stuff because it has everything covered? Because mm. I'm not saying you need to go out and reinvent mm-hmm. yourself, but if the tool is there, then it's probably worth just piggybacking onto it. Yeah, I agree. I think you could look at this writer and under those different subjects, money, scheduling, air travel, lodging, et cetera, 
I would just do an exercise where you write down like in an ideal situation, this is how I would work best. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be like practical in a way, but it obviously has to be like, I guess, realistic to some context. Like it's not like, oh, I want to be flown on a private jet and that's what helps me work best. You know, it's like being real, like what would help mm -hmm. me be the best creative. And I think that would be really illuminating about like what you need in order to perform. Like what, what would take care of all of the like side worries, you know, that get in the way of you being creative or like you doing the work that you do. You're freezing. Am I? I'm just not moving. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, I wasn't sure. I was like, I don't think I've seen Eugene blink. I think that's a good place oh, to cap you're, things off. You're wrapping up. Oh my gosh, this is this is episode number one hundred. It is. I'm trying to muster up the energy to get really excited. Yeah, you need to go back to sleep. Okay. Well, we didn't prepare anything special for this episode. So <laughs> I think we're just going to wrap it up as it is. Sorry, guys. If you're interested in hearing more about Megan, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Megan.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Megan.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, and Eugene at Megan.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. -E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.